hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm. What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. The topic today is consensual non-monogamy. And let me start by saying that Consensual non-monogamy is not only more mainstream than you think, but has some surprising scientifically proven relationship benefits. My guest today is Dr. Amy Moores. Dr. Moores is an assistant professor of psychology at Chapman University and serves as a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. She is an internationally recognized expert on polyamory, swinging, and other forms of consensually non-monogamous relationships. It was about two years ago that I first heard Dr. Morris give a lecture about consensual non-monogamy. And I remember thinking, well, that sounds interesting, but I thought not particularly relevant to me. I mean, I assume that few, if any of my patients were openly and consensually non-monogamous. Well, by the end of the lecture, I had a completely different point of view. Dr. Morris basically busted every one of my misconceptions. So strap in. I think you're going to be really surprised by a lot of what Dr. Morris has to say. So welcome, Dr. Morris. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about all things consensual non-monogamy. Well, I've heard you talk a couple of times now, and every time I learn something new. But I'm going to ask you to start today with the same anecdote that you told at the beginning of that first lecture I heard. Sure. I like to think of, um, you know, metaphors or analogies to better understand consensual non-monogamy. So imagine a room full of people. And if you ask everyone in that room, if they have a pet cat, about one out of five people would raise their hand that they have a pet cat at home. Yet, if you ask that same room of people, how many of you have engaged in consensual non-monogamy at some point during their life? Very few would raise their hands. Yet the research of my colleagues and I at the Kinsey Institute finds that actually it's the same number of people who have a pet cat. About one out of five Americans have engaged in some form of polyamory, swinging or open relationship in their lifetime. Well, wait, say, say that again. One out of five, meaning the same number of people that own a cat have Indeed. participated <laughs> Yep. And it's probably a lot higher than people expect. About 22% of Americans have done this. And it's not cheating. This is a consensually open, mutually agreed upon relationship. Um, and we probably don't hear about it as often as this one out of five statistic because the stigma surrounding consensual non-monogamy is so high. It's so high, particularly for women. But before we go forward with all of this, I'd like you to just define a few terms because this is all part of your world, of course, but I think a lot of people really don't know exactly what you mean by number one, consensual non-monogamy, and then also things like polyamory and swinging. So could you just kind of give us non-monogamy 101 just so that we're all talking the same language? 
Of course. So consensual non-monogamy is an umbrella term that describes relationships that vary on emotional, romantic, or sexual openness. So these are relationships where people agree with each other, the extent to which they have other maybe emotionally close or romantic or sexual relationships that are concurrent with other people. And sometimes these can take forms of group relationships or they can be independent relationships. But that's the kind of the overarching idea that people are consenting to agree to this form of non-monogamy. And then in the research, uh, so researchers and clinicians tend to study three common types of consensually non-monogamous relationships. And one of them is polyamory, which refers to relationships where people often have emotional, romantic, and or sexual partners. And so they can be several concurrent relationships, or it could be maybe a triad or a quad, so three or four people in a committed relationship with one another. And then there's open relationships, and those are relationships in which people have agreements where they're often romantically or emotionally exclusive to one partner, although they might have multiple sexual partners that are concurrent. So typically, people in open relationships might negotiate that love is off the table with other people who's not in that couple unit, but then they can have sex with other people. And then the third common type of consensually non-monogamous relationship are swinging relationships. And those are relationships similar to open relationships where people negotiate that romance or emotional closeness is typically for one person, typically the person that they're in a couple with, um, but they can have sex with multiple people. And swingers often engage in group sex or they might swap partners. So they're typically doing it together where maybe people in open relationships might be having sex with other people more independently than having uh, sex as a couple or with another couple. And when you talk about that one out of five number, is this across the age spectrum? I don't know if you if you actually looked at that in your research, but I think when most people think about this, they think, okay, so there's a bunch of 20-year-olds that are going around having open relationships, but are you also seeing this in couples that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s? 60s, 70s. I mean, what's what's the age range? Yeah, great question. Short answer, everyone's doing it. Um, <laughs> and uh, in a study, a nationally representative study, my colleagues and I looked into this very question. We wanted to know, are there you know age differences? Who's doing this? And so this data, mind you, was collected about eight years ago. So things might have changed in the intervening years. But at that time, we found no differences based on age and previous engagement in non-monogamy, meaning that people in their 20s and 30s, 40s, 60s, 80s, they were all equally likely to have engaged in non-monogamy at some point during their life. So the other question I have, and I don't know if your research filtered out for this, but I'm guessing, but I've been wrong on everything else. I'll probably be wrong on this too. But but I'm guessing that if you have, let's say, a, a couple in their 20s or 30s that are openly non-monogamous, that the likelihood is that both of them are, that both of them have agreed to do that. But that perhaps as you get into the older decades, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, is it more likely that while it's open and while they've agreed to be non-monogamous, that maybe it's just one part of the couple, you know, the man says, I'm just not able to have an erection anymore. And I'm really not that interested. But, you know, go have, you know, go at it with someone else. It's okay with me or, or vice versa. Do you, do you have that kind of data to know how often it's 
both parts of the couples participating as opposed to one? Right. That's such an interesting question. Unfortunately, at this time in the scientific literature, we don't have that question. The for academics to be taking the topic of consensual non-monogamy seriously and, you know, investing time and resources, it's kind of new. Um, maybe over the past decade, it's really taken off in the academic literature as a serious topic to study. And so we don't have that kind of lifespan or aging approach to data yet. Although I completely get where you're coming from. I, I see anecdotally in my research different reasons as to why, what led people to open up their relationship. And often, you know, there's changes to ability status, or maybe there's pragmatic reasons, like someone is long distance. um, And those things might be more common occurrences as we age, maybe changes in ability status or different things like that. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we started to collect longitudinal data and really, um, took a nuanced approach to understanding the different ways in which people are navigating their intimate lives across the life course. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because the majority of my patients are on the other side of 40, typically. And, And since I heard your lecture, one of the things I learned is that we should be asking about this, not just assuming that a couple that is in a partnered relationship or married is only with each other. And just yesterday, just yesterday, a woman was sitting across from me And she said, boy, you know, I don't have sex with my husband anymore. And I just looked straight at her and I said, well, how about with your boyfriend? And, you know, and I've known this woman for 20 years. And she just looked at me and she laughed and she said, yeah, I have sex with my boyfriend. And I said, does your husband know? And she said, actually, he does. He does know. You know, he's just not he's older than I am. He's not interested. He has a lot of medical problems and and he's totally okay with it. So. Completely anecdotally in my world, it is more often than not just one part of the couple or a woman will say to me, you know, I don't I'm not interested in sex. I know my husband has someone he goes and he has sex with and that's just fine with me. You know, I just don't want to. So I would love to to do that research. It would be difficult to do. But I think that it would be really interesting. Maybe I'll just do a survey on social media, <laughs> anonymous right. survey and and filter it out by age because um well, that's not scientific, not like the kind of research you do. It would be just kind of interesting to get a snapshot into into just how we divide that up by age. All right. So moving on, um, in your published research, you identified five specific misconceptions that people have and in the scientific world that existed about consensual non-monogamy. So what I'd like to do is to go through those misconceptions one by one so that you can bust that myth and tell us what the truth is. So let's start with misconception number one. There is a quote type, end quote, of person who engages in consensual non-monogamy. True or false? (laughs) Oh, I'll get to that. (laughs) We have this idea, like there is a sense of otherness that comes to the average person's mind when we talk about who engages in consensual non-monogamy. So things like, oh, someone who does that, they must be a radical liberal or an atheist or maybe a Californian. Um, But people have a stereotype as if that person who engages in consensual non-monogamy isn't someone who might live next door to you or attend the same church as you. It must be someone completely different from your own identity or your own neighborhood. 
And so a few years ago, my colleagues and I at the Kinsey Institute conducted a nationally representative study of Americans. And we wanted to know, are there things about us, like our gender, our age, our religion, that might predict us being more or less likely to engage in consensual non-monogamy? And we had more than 8,700 people in the U.S. take part in this. And what we found was basically there were no differences on things that you would probably expect. So people who had engaged in consensual non-monogamy did not differ from those who had never engaged in consensual non-monogamy on age, political affiliation, religion, race, ethnicity, education level, geographic region in the U.S., or income. So basically, people from all backgrounds and ideologies, young people, old people, liberals, conservatives, independent, white people, people of color, Catholics, Christians, Buddhists, everyone has done it. Um, the only difference that we did find was that lesbian, gay, and bisexual people are about two and a half times more likely to have engaged in consensual non-monogamy than people who identify as heterosexual or straight. I, that. That just blows me away. I mean, it really does. That that in and of itself, that one misconception. Well, let's move on to conception number two. People try consensual non-monogamy to fix their relationship. And this is actually, you know, one again that I thought, well, of course, people who have terrible relationships and things aren't going well are going to say, hey, I'm going to let's get out and be with other people and see if that's going to make our relationship better. So bust that myth. Right. Yeah. We tend to associate that, you know, someone who's opening up their relationship or engaging in non-monogamy, it must be some last ditch effort to fix their relationship. Uh, Jessica Wood and colleagues in uh, 2021, they did a study asking people, well, what led you to engaging in consensual non-monogamy? What were your motivations? So they asked 540 people to describe kind of what led them, what was their motivation? And they found that some of the reasons were related to values. So for instance, monogamy was too rigid or traditional for some people. There were also practical motivations like being in a long distance relationship. Other reasons were related to building a community or nourishing the well-being of themselves or their partners or exploring sexual desires that they had. But across all of those 540 responses, not a single person mentioned that they engaged in consensual non-monogamy to fix their relationship. I, you know, one of the things, and I, and I recall that you did talk about this in your lecture um, along the reasons why people might do it. How long, often do people do it because they have some interest or activity or something that they don't share with their partner or their spouse that they want to share with someone else? And it's not just about sex. I mean, maybe someone is passionate about opera and their husband would never go to an opera under any circumstances. So they find the lover who will take them to see Tosca. I mean, is, is right, right, right. And that is happening in a, a different study that my colleagues and I did in 2017. I asked a whole bunch of people engaged in consensual non-monogamy, what are the benefits of your relationship? And so they typed out what were the benefits. And then I asked a similar group of people engaged in monogamous relationships, what are the benefits of your relationship? And a lot Lots of the benefits were similar, love, trust, commitment, financial stability, having a family, but something unique happened. The people who engaged in consensual non-monogamy, 
the number two top mentioned reason or uh, top mentioned benefit was this activity variety that they have other partners now that share this hobby or activity that they get to do um, that potentially their primary partner or one of their longer term partners just wasn't interested in and things like yeah like cosplay and opera and you know board games and travel and you know extreme sports were a lot of these responses that they were able to carve that time out with a new partner. And because it was just something that wasn't incredibly interesting, or maybe something that their, you know, long term partner wasn't interested in. Okay, but the counter to that, if I'm sitting there and telling someone this, and they're gonna look at me saying, now, come on, if, if your husband doesn't like opera, find a girlfriend to go to right. opera with. Why are you finding a, a lover to go to opera with? Right, right. I mean, I think for some people, maybe the line between lover and friend is really blurred. And so it could work really well. Um, but yeah, I could see someone being like, well, just make, make a friend on meetup.com or something. Exactly. Uh, but for some people, maybe there's like a romantic element that they want with these hobbies or, you know, I, when I think opera, I think romance. So it probably oh, works for yes. a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, probably. All right. On to misconception number three. Number three is people in consensually non-monogamous relationships have poor quality relationships. Right. So we have this stereotype in society that people tend to believe that monogamy, but not consensual non-monogamy, garners satisfaction and trust and commitment and this idea that monogamy is the plot line of nearly every single rom-com or romantic uh, plot line, and that monogamy is this key to everlasting love and the sense of permanency. And so to understand if there are actually differences in love and satisfaction and commitment, my colleagues and I asked over 2,100 people to report on popular measures of relationship quality. So these are things that relationship scientists tend to come ask people about trust and commitment and satisfaction. And we ask people in monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships to report on a variety of these dimensions. And we found no differences among people who practice monogamy and consensual non-monogamy on the amount of love they felt for their partner, on the amount of commitment they felt in their relationship, or the satisfaction that they have. But we did find a couple of differences. We found that people in consensually non-monogamous relationships reported slightly higher levels of sexual satisfaction compared to people who engage in monogamy and slightly higher levels of trust in their relationships. When you said higher levels of sexual satisfaction, you mean in the primary relationship as opposed to the open relationship? So in that study, we looked at people who engaged in consensual non-monogamy, asked them about their sexual satisfaction with their primary relationship and their secondary relationship. And both of those were scored higher with sexual satisfaction compared to someone in a monogamous relationship with their one partner. So they were experiencing higher sexual satisfaction with both of their partners for people who engaged in consensual non-monogamy. So the other thing that just occurred to me that I probably should have asked you earlier is when we're talking about these um, open non-monogamous relationships, and you just mentioned secondary and other partner, how many times does someone have multiple other partners as opposed to just one? You know, is there a, a typical that we're just talking about one other relationship versus many? 
Right. And it's kind of a choose your own adventure. People who engage in open relationships and swinging relationships tend to have a primary or, you know, spouse partner or long-term partner and then have other sexual partners. People engage in polyamory, they might have multiple primary partners or they might not use the label primary and say that they have multiple, you know, committed or anchor or serious relationship partners. Um, so it really depends on the type of the relationship. In some of my convenience sample work, I find that about 70% of people who engage in polyamory do say that they have a primary relationship and that their other relationships are maybe ranked or hierarchical and they have other sorts of relationships. But among those 30%, they're saying, no, I have equal partnerships with the people that I'm dating. Yeah, as opposed to someone who outside of the primary relationship, they have a series of, say, flings or one night stands or however you want to identify it, which is very, very different than saying I have a secondary committed relationship. Absolutely. Right, right. And I think that people engage in consensual non-monogamy, no matter what type of label they might use, you're going to see behaviorally, yeah, people might have a friends with benefits or maybe a kink partner or, you know, someone that they might say they're dating instead of using the term partner. Yeah. Using the term dating to who? To their, <laughs> not to the world at large, of course, because we right. Like, not to their yeah, yeah, OBGYN. Or, and, yeah. <laughs> but they'll tell me on anonymous surveys. So I very much appreciate that. <laughs> but, you know, and, and the topic of loving relationships and, and, you know, when I hear you loud and clear that you are saying that by and large, the people that practice open non-monogamy, they like their partner, they have good relationships. And in fact, that's why they can be open about it and talk about it and explore this. How much of this do you think is just boredom? You know, what I refer to as the monotony of monogamy. And and they say, yeah, I like you just fine, but it's just sex with you isn't exciting anymore. And you know what? That happens. And there's, you know, at least two decades of research on that. People who are in long-term relationships, they go through something called dyadic withdrawal. So they end up, they spend a lot of time together and less time with friends and family. And then they also, research shows that sexual satisfaction really dips after the first couple of years of being with someone and then plateaus at a lower rate uh, across the life course. And Researchers have shown that it, it part of it is habituation and women particularly, uh, cis women particularly habituate quicker than men, meaning that, you know, they need novel stimuli or excitement or some sort of arousal to reach that kind of desire or orgasm state where, you know, when you're habituated with that same partner over and over, there could be an element of, hey, I want excitement or, you know, I need to revive my erotic desire. And one pathway could be consensual non-monogamy. Yeah. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode with uh, Rachel Zara, sex therapist, the sex therapist who also happens to be my daughter. But one of the things that we talked a lot about, about was fantasy and how fantasy is healthy and is really an integral part of many um, long-term relationships in terms of providing that kind of excitement and variety. So I guess this is just another approach to instead of thinking the fantasy, it's acting out the fantasy. 
Right, so, right. Or, yeah. right. Or maybe they thought of the fantasy for months and months and years. And it's like, well, why don't we just, you know, manifest this or enact right. it? And, and also, as you said, you know, we, we talked, I talked with Rachel a lot about vanilla sex versus kink sex and all of that. And the whole idea of maybe your primary partner is really only interested in vanilla sex so that this gives you an opportunity to try some of the things that are more on the on the kink range. Right, so this absolutely. this brings me to to misconception number four because now that we're talking about potentially having multiple car- partners and practicing kink and fantasy and all of that, misconception number four is people in consensually non-monogamous relationships tend to engage in unsafe sex. True or false? Right. Oh, I'll get to that. <laughs> so- we have this idea that consensual non-monogamy must be spreading sexually transmitted infections because there's multiple people involved. And on the surface level, there could be a kernel of truth to that. Justin LaMiller did a study of people who practice consensual non-monogamy and monogamy. And he did find that people engaged in consensual non-monogamy have about twice as many sexual partners over the life course as people who practice monogamy. And so there are more sexual partners. And if there's more sexual partners, perhaps there's more risk. And so some of my research, as well as Justin LaMiller's, looked at, well, what are people doing? doing uh, in their sex lives? What types of barriers are they using? How often? And the research shows that when you ask people engaged in monogamy and consensual non-monogamy, have you ever been diagnosed with the following STIs? And you give a really long checklist, things like um, herpes or chlamydia. People engaged in consensual non-monogamy and uh, monogamy report the same rates. So there's no differences, even though people engaged in consensual non-monogamy have more partners. And then what's probably explaining that is how people are implementing their safer sex practices. We see that people who engage in consensual non-monogamy have very clear agreements and boundaries around testing and barriers and clear communication around like whoopsies if something goes wrong, you know, explaining it to multiple people or getting regularly tested. And um in comparison studies among people who are cheating on their partners. Yeah, so they see I'm glad partners. you brought that up because that's something that yeah. we should, probably should have talked about at the beginning, but let's talk about it now, is that consensual non-monogamy is not the same as cheating. Right, as right, right. Through all of this, all of these you know, myths that we're busting do not hold for cheaters. It's very specifically people that are open about their relationship. So talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so I wanted to do a study to see the extent to which people were using barrier methods when they were, or other safer sex practices when they were having sex with their multiple partners. And so I wanted to look at people who were cheating on their partner because they say they're monogamous, but they're keeping a secret from their partner. They're they're cheating on them with someone else. So they have multiple sex partners. And I compared their safer sex practices to people who practice consensual non-monogamy. So they also have multiple sex partners, but the difference is it's not a secret. They're letting their other partners know that they have multiple sexual partners. And what we found was that people engaged in consensual non-monogamy were more likely to consistently use condoms for vaginal sex, condoms for oral sex, condoms for anal sex. They were more likely to correctly sterilize their sex sex toys and get regularly tested compared to people who were cheating on their partners. 
And alarmingly, we also ask people, did you inform your other partners that you had sex with someone else? And over 80% of people who practice consensual non-monogamy said, yeah, I told my other partners that I had sex with someone else. But among the people who were cheating on their partner, about 25% said that they told their partner. So now you have this person who is completely unaware that they probably need to get screened for an STI or their uh, sexual health might be in jeopardy. Yeah. You know, I wonder, and one of the things that, um, again, I don't know if you if you looked at this, but how often when someone says to a partner, this is something I would like to do, that the, all that I'm talking about in the primary relationship, and the other partner says, no, no, I don't want to, it's not comfortable for me, and and what happens to that relationship? Does the relationship end? Does that person turn into a cheater? Do you have that kind of a data? Do you have that kind of data? Yeah, we don't have that those answers yet, um, but we really need them because what happens? And, and maybe some people seek out a couple's counselor that's affirming of non-monogamy. Well, well, okay, back up there because yeah. I do remember very clearly from your lecture, you said one of the problems is is that when you look at the majority of mer- of therapists and counselors, that not only do they not ask about it, but that they are certainly not sex positive about it. Right, right. Yeah, that's why I had the caveat. Try to find someone who's affirming of consensual non-monogamy. Um, I, I, I hope the field is changing. I'm doing a lot of training with therapists, but you're right. Uh, some of my other research has shown that one out of five therapists have basic working knowledge. So four out of five therapists are completely unaware of terms related to non-monogamy, might confuse it with cheating, and that can just create a really uncomfortable, if not hostile, therapy. Right. It's not just that they don't know anything about it. It's that they are outwardly negative about it. So yes. that if you know, a woman brings up, well, we're in an openly non-monogamous relationship, and you know, and the therapist says, well, stop that. That's going to harm you. Know, that's a terrible thing, and it's going to destroy your relationship. And what are you thinking? And I can't work with you if you're going to be with other people people, et cetera, et cetera. That's a big problem. Oh, such a big problem because that shouldn't be happening in the therapeutic space. And then imagine what that does to someone. Like that's a professional telling you that like something's wrong and you should end it. And it might scare someone off and that would be warranted from seeking mental health uh, support at a yeah, you think I think if, if you have the yeah. counselor you have the therapist who says you're a terrible person to even think about such a thing much less do it and you have to stop right away they're not going to go back right right and unfortunately to put that scenario into you know a proportion uh, my research has shown that about one out of 13 therapists have told their client who engages in consensual non-monogamy to renounce their relationship mm-hmm. because it's some sort of uh they see it as bad sick or immoral so, so it's happening way too frequently so misconception number five which is a big one uh, people in consensually non-monogamous relationships are unfit parents. Now, before you respond to that, I have to say that my misconception was even deeper than that. I wasn't thinking about them being unfit parents. I was thinking about them being parents, fit or unfit. I'm thinking people that do this, they don't have a bunch of kids running around at home. I mean, really? Not to mention that if you get pregnant, you know, who is it? Primary guy or secondary guy? Right. Let's right. talk about parenting and, and open non-monogamy. 
Yeah. So we tend to, well, as you're saying, you tend to not even associate non-monogamy with parenthood. Other people just view non-monogamy as they must be bad parents, somehow harming their children that, you know, something psychologically bad might happen to these kids who are raised uh, with parents who practice non-monogamy. There's a sociologist, Eli Sheff, and she has been studying parents who practice polyamory and their children since 1997. So it's one of the uh, longest running studies that looks at the experiences of what's happening with the parents and then also what's happening with the kids in these relationships. And in her, so she takes an ethnographic approach. So she does interviews and stays with these families, learns about them. And what she found in her research was that parents experience numerous benefits from this family arrangement. So they said things like polyamory and co-parenting and sharing parenting roles uh, gives them benefits of monetary resources, role models for their children, personal time. A lot of parents also talked about how it can be really helpful, especially if they have a kid who has special needs and just needs more time and care and attention. And then Eli Sheff also looked at what the children were saying, what the benefits were. And basically, the young kids really, really enjoyed it. They were like, I'm receiving all of this adult attention and I get to do these cool things with this partner or this partner takes me there. or They bring me these sort of gifts or they help me with my homework. And so they're really young kids you know, I don't mean to over-exaggerate, but it seems like they really love this because they're okay, getting... Like, okay, so I'm just throwing this out there. So let's just say yeah. a woman has... She's married. She's got a husband. Yes. And then she... So that's her primary relationship. And then she has a secondary relationship. And the secondary relationship also has a wife and has kids. So what, these two families get together and go to the zoo together. Is that what's happening? <laughs> Often, yes. Yeah. Wow. Some people keep their parenting separate and keep... Uh, non-monogamy is secret from their kids. And for very warranted reasons, there's no federal or state protection based on relationship status. But some people really do have that blended sort of family and they might call themselves auntie or uncle or maybe by their first name. It might actually be additional father or maternal or some gender neutral term, some parent role. And yeah, they might go to the zoo. They might sell it. They might go on vacation together. Um, they might, you know, share meals multiple times a week. It really depends family. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So this, this one out of five number that you started out with, with everything that you've said, which is largely positive, and I do want to get to the negatives in a minute, but with all this stuff that's positive, do you see the numbers growing? Do you see this as being more commonplace in the years to come? Yes. And I'm working on that data now. It's preliminary, hasn't been peer reviewed, but I am starting to see an increase in how many people not only are expressing desire to want to try these relationships, but that are actually engaging in non-monogamy as well. And so... I I think we're going to see it increase even more. It will plateau at some point, but something's happening right now with the zeitgeist in the U.S. and potentially elsewhere where we're starting to see celebrities talk about I engage in polyamory or open relationships or plot lines to different TV shows or movies touch on this. And the more those things become a part of everyday language and make it into the homes of people, they're going to start to understand, oh, I have other options. I don't 
always have to be monogamous. I can also have a committed or, you know, fun or whatever type of relationship they're seeking that is non-monogamous. Um, divorce rates, up, down, or the same in openly non-monogamous couples? As Great question. We don't have the data for that yet. Um, I hope to conduct that sort of research soon. My guess is if I were to, you know, a priori hypothesize is they're probably the same, the divorce rates. I think divorce happens. Um, and if anything, people in consensual non-monogamy might be really skilled at open communication and, you know, and not as bored. I mean, face it, I'm I'm just guessing that we might even find that the divorce rates are lower. You know, it's also interesting to me, your your data, of course, is, is uh, U.S. data. And when you look at other countries, you know, European countries, I mean, I think of, of France as everyone has their lover on the side and and it's no big deal. And in fact, I went to visit a, an old childhood friend of mine who's lived her entire life in Paris. And I remember we went to her home where I met her husband and then we went to her art studio where she showed me the back bedroom where she meets her lovers and she made this sound like well of course i do this is how it's done in europe and i know that you are studying u.s data but do you have a sense of what's going on in other countries I do. And I can't even take credit for it. I'm working with a really great postdoc, uh, Simone Dubay at the Kinsey Institute, as well as the associate director, Amanda G- uh, Gesselman. And uh, they collected some global data. So lots of different countries and looked at what type of relationship people were currently in. Are they in a monogamous relationship? Are they casually dating or consensual non-monogamy? And it turns out people are doing it all over and at very similar rates. So about 5% of people, up to 10% of people are currently engaged in some form of consensually non-monogamous relationship around the globe. Um, We're working on that paper now. I'm really excited to put it out because this is the first to look at non-Western places in terms of prevalence of engaging in consensual non-monogamy. You know, we have a mutual friend, Wednesday Martin, who I did a uh, podcast with her some months back. And and of course, as you know, one of the things that, that she talks about quite a bit is that anthropologically, biologically, we're really not meant to have one partner. And when you look at what her data has shown and then look at your work, you kind of think, you know, maybe that's truly the case is that human beings biologically are not meant to have one lifelong partner, yet our social construct is such that this is what the expectation is, so that anybody who doesn't stick to that plan is, you know, considered to be immoral or, you know, bad. And it, it is kind of an interesting concept about rethinking what is it that we're wired to do when it comes to relationship? Right. And our whole legal system is even set up for just one person. Like it's really hard for people to go against the grain because you're probably going to met with a lot of societal stigma. It might be legally hard to have multiple partners and carve out that sort of life. And so it, you know, it really takes a lot for someone to go and engage in consensual non-monogamy when the repercussions like stigma or legal recourse are very alive and real. Yeah, no, right. It's not easy. It's something that you have to do intentionally, thoughtfully, and at some personal risk in terms of 
how not only society will view you, but even, you know, your therapist, your boss, your mother, you know, I mean, it just, it kind of goes on and on in terms of what the potential negative repercussions can be. And speaking of negative, I do want to circle back because, you know, we, we talked about really all the positive parts of this. And I'm, I'm sure in your research, you also came across what are the, Maybe not. What? But what are what are the negative repercussions of open non-monogamous relationships? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with stigma, anticipated stigma, and fear of rejection from family or friends or actually being rejected from them. A study was done in 2021 by uh, Ryan Witherspoon and colleagues, and he looked. He asked people. Uh, a bunch of different questions related to the discrimination they feel like they've experienced based on their non-monogamous relationship. And over two thirds of the people in the study said that they had experienced discrimination. And that ranged from getting fired from my job because of my relationship status or having child custody issues or having a really negative experience in a medical setting or a therapy setting. So people are having these discriminatory or highly prejudiced experiences simply based on the consensual relationship that they might have with multiple people and multiple adults, mind you. Um, So the repercussions are definitely there. Eli Sheff's research has well documented that people can become estranged from their families. Their families might cut them off if they engage in non-monogamy. Eli also is in the court system a lot as um, someone who does uh, expert testimonies on the behalf of kids because someone like a grandmother or extended family member might find out that their daughter or son or kid is engaging in swinging or polyamory and they might seek custody of the kid because they believe the kid is in some kind of harm. Um, And judges often rule in favor of, you know, rehoming the child. And so there are some very real tangible negative outcomes from engaging in consensual. Has anyone looked at mental health outcomes, things like anxiety, depression, um, that either are better or worse as a result of these relationships? Right. And so I've looked at that and some other researchers, and it's this idea of minority stress. So when you have a marginalized identity, it could be your based on your sexuality, it could be your race, it could be your gender. You tend to experience these unique stressors based on that marginalized identity. So in the case of people who practice consensual non-monogamy, they're receiving stressors like fear of rejection from family or friends or uh, having to navigate disclosure in the workplace, um, worry about child custody issues. Those, The extent to which people experience those stressors based on their relationship type, it is linked with higher levels of anxiety, depression, and also higher levels of having relationship issues because it can filter down into the different relationships because it's like a, it's a stressor and, you know, it creates a lot of internal psychological conflict that can spill over into people's relationships with other people. So this reminds me of um, years ago, I was in Africa uh, in, in Kenya, working in a very remote area. And our guide was someone that unlike most of the people in the community, he only had one wife. And he told us that his father, who had 10 wives, told him, listen, my advice to you is stick with one wife because there's just too many relationships 
mean too many arguments, too many problems, too many people to keep happy. Your life will be much simpler if you only have one wife. So there is that part to it, too, in terms of life does become more complicated if you're juggling two or more relationships at once. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I would never, you know, propose to someone who just really feels fulfilled and enjoys one relationship. Do that. Monogamy is valid. But, you know, some people, they might be more autonomous or have different values or frankly, like a little bit of chaos. I'm not sure, but could lead them to a life of non-monogamy and it can be very rewarding. Yeah. You didn't mention is one of the negatives that when Christmas comes along, you have to buy twice as many gifts. There's yeah. I think that about Valentine's Day, if you celebrate oh, that. Oh, Valentine's Day. Days. How do you negotiate that? Yeah. But then you can quickly turn it into a positive because now you're the receiver of multiple gifts as well. <laughs> True. I like that idea. So, so let's just say there's someone that's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, this is intriguing. This is something that quite frankly, I've been thinking about, and I'm interested in in doing this, is there a way that someone brings this up to their long-term partner or spouse that doesn't make it sound negative? I mean, you're, you're clearly not saying to this person, I don't like you. I don't like being with you. I don't like having sex with you. What you're saying is, is I think that it would be interesting and perhaps relationship and life enhancing if we did open it up. So how does someone bring that up in a positive rather than negative way? Right. And I I think what you're getting at too, if the language of like coming from a place of love and commitment and trust and not framing it as something negative is going to be the the best scenario. So I typically recommend people who have this interest to First, if financially possible, seek out a therapist that's affirming of non-monogamy where they can run some of these ideas across the therapist, maybe engage in couples therapy. Um, there are also plenty of books that people could read about the opening up process or about non-monogamy. So they can also consider, well, what what what's really on the table? Am I open to falling in love with someone else? Or do I just want to have threesome experiences with my partner? So to think about what the non-monogamy monogamy is. But as for specifically broaching that conversation, I am starting to do that research now with some colleagues at the Kinsey Institute about like what works, what what is not threatening, what is uh, productive communication. And some of the things that I've been thinking about, granted, I haven't tested them yet, but I'll share them anyway, (laughs) is thinking about maybe first starting with uh, fantasies and starting with hypotheticals, like ask your partner who their celebrity crush is and ask for details, like why? And like maybe hearing about that is non-threatening because most likely that celebrity is not going to be an attainable person, but it could get the conversation started and really test the waters for getting into that fantasy development, um, thinking in a sexy way about someone else. And you can and start to understand where your partner is going to meet you with maybe jealousy or wanting to get into it. And then maybe talking about their fantasy. Oh, have you ever thought about like just going on a date with someone else or having those sorts of conversations that seem um, safe that no one's going to hop on a dating app right away or just talking about these erotic desires. And then I think as you really um, well said, 
coming from a place of care, like, hey, it seems like we both might have this shared fantasy. Like, what? I mean, nothing's wrong with our relationship or, you know, you want to reaffirm your partner. Things are going great. I love you. You're my person. Whatever it is, whatever language um, you have for that person, then you could bring up maybe, do you want to like just try to explore this together? And and you're allowed to say no. You're allowed to have some time to think about it because you don't want to pressure someone into it or make it put on the spot or the worst case scenario, give them an ultimatum. Do most people find the secondary partner in their own world of friends and community, or do they go on a, a specific app to try and find someone else who also is in the open consensual monogamy world? Oh, interesting. My guess is uh, dating apps, and there's a lot. Um, usually, people might not, you know, get, go and date someone's best friend, but who knows? That could that could work. Uh, but there are a lot of dating apps that are tailored to people who practice swinging or polyamory or open relationships. Um, and then there's also even the dating apps that are for monogamy. Um, I think there's a lot of people on those that might also have that. That desire and you could probably hang out on those dating apps and find someone uh there as well the world out there to explore <laughs> yeah. so um when are you when is your book coming out <laughs> oh great question i have been thinking about writing a book i'm going up for tenure early yeah. and i'm wondering i think the world needs uh you know a, a book that is focused on maybe how to open up your relationship that is evidence-based and other things but before I write that, I actually have a really great idea for a children's book about polyamory from the, the, the lens of kids and about the benefits that they receive from these multiple partners. So I have to decide which I'm going to write first, but I'll get to it. <laughs> How did you get into this world? How did this become, you know, when you're in graduate school, of course, and, and some people go to graduate school because they have a particular interest in researching something and other people just land on it based on people that they're working with or that things are exposed to. So how did that, what was your story? Yeah. Oh, I wish I had this like clear aha moment uh, where I was like, yes, I'm going to become the leading expert on consensual non-monogamy. That was for sure an accident. Um, but I was always interested in LGBTQ issues and I was doing a study um, at, in my first master's degree program on dating relationships among LGBTQ people. And I asked people to describe their relationship to me. And I noticed a lot of people were talking about multiple partners. And that was the first time I had heard the word polyamory. So I was in my early 20s. I knew what swinging was, open relationships. And it seemed like queer people were doing this. And it was pretty common. And people were describing all of these types of relationships that I was not seeing as a young relationship scientist in my course content, in the journal articles I was reading at the conferences that I attended. And I was like, that's so interesting because it seems like this is common, if not normative, among queer people. Yet there is this big erasure 
within academia of seriously considering non-monogamy. And I just kind of took off from there. I was emailing different people to attend a PhD program, figuring out where I wanted to pursue my uh, doctorate. And I was corresponding with now, she's a tenured professor, Dr. Terry Connolly at the University of Michigan. And I had just mentioned to her, I had collected this data. I'm really interested in polyamory. I can't find much research about it. She had collected a similar data set that year, unbeknownst to me, much better because she's a professor professor and I'm a master's student. Um, but not surprisingly, she took me on to be her student. And then for the last 13 years, we've been studying all things consensual non-monogamy. It's such a fun and rewarding topic to me. It's very new. I'm able to help change policy in the field of psychology, help train therapists, and you know, really work to destigmatize consensual non-monogamy. And it's become such a great joy and um as such a clear purpose in my career path these days. Can the terms open non-monogamy and consensual non-monogamy be used interchangeably or are they different terms? Oh yeah, and ethical non-monogamy, they're all synonyms. As a researcher, I tend to use consensual non-monogamy just to be clear about the axis of consent that people are mutually agreeing, where uh, about maybe 30 or 40 years ago, researchers used the term non-monogamy to mean cheating in the academic literature. So that's kind of why we had to put the consensual above it. Um, but open non-monogamy works, ethical non-monogamy, however people want to describe themselves as long as they're mutually agreeing to the terms and the people involved in are as well. So it's all, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, what happened, I asked you, is there anything that you would like to end with that you want everyone that's listening this to know or to understand better? Oh, yeah, it's so great. Um, lots of things, but I'll end on a short positive note. Like if this is something that you're interested in, or you have desire, or you're curious, just know you're not alone. Lots of people are doing this. About one out of 20 people who are currently in a relationship in the US and Canada are in some form of consensual non-monogamy. You might just not know about it because the stigma is really high. We've also talked about a lot of people have done it. So you probably have a friend or family member with experience. Um, and there are a lot of people that want to do this and want to navigate their intimate lives like this. And so, you know, if the stigma or some other things are holding you back, you know, I hope that these people who are listening consider maybe reading a book or finding an online community, or there's even like meetup groups, you know, like a whole polyamory bar night in major cities where you could go and you can meet people who share similar values as you. Um, and I, you know, I guess I just want people to know that they're not alone and it non-monogamy is a completely valid way to have a relationship. Well, I have to say this for me has been one of the more interesting interviews that I have done. Yeah. Not that I don't like talking about dry vaginas and hot flashes, but this is <laughs> really terrific. And I will have all of this information about books and your websites and social media will all be in the program notes so that people can continue this journey about learning of Perfect. open non-monogamy. And I look so forward to seeing your research and your books when they come out. 
And thank you so much for doing this and spending this time. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. This is such a great way to spend my afternoon. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Bye.